Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 9. When I wrapped up last week's episode, I was working through the little that is known about the histories of the five cities that allied against the Israelites in Joshua 10, a battle that was fought on the day the sun stood still. In that episode, I had enough time to cover Jarmuth and Eglon. I had previously covered Hebron, and I am saving Jerusalem for later, which leaves the history of Lachish, where I will begin this episode. And with that, let's get started. Before beginning, a quick refresher from the text. When the king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had taken Ai, utterly destroying it and executed its king, like he had done to the king and city of Jericho, and how the people of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, and were living among them. The king of Jerusalem was terrified, because Gibeon was a large city, like one of the royal cities, meaning those in Canaan. Gibeon was larger than Ai, and all the men of Gibeon were warriors. So, the king of Jerusalem sent a message to the kings of Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, saying, Come up and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the Israelites. Then these five kings of the Amorites gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and camped against Gibeon and made war against it. Before starting the history of Lachish, a note. They are listed as being Amorite, a group I covered in Chapter 5, Episode 8 released just over a year ago in November 2019. The Amorites, especially when used in a biblical context, generally refers to certain highland mountaineers who inhabited the land of Canaan, described in Genesis as descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. They were a Semitic-speaking people from Syria, in large parts of southern Mesopotamia. The outside record shows they lived in the area about the same time the Israelites crossed the Jordan, but their population and influence decreased drastically in that period. Now for Lachish. Lachish is also known as Tel Eduar and is located between Mount Hebron and the coast, in an area known as the Western Foothills, and butts up against the Judean mountains in the east. This means it's to the southwest of Jerusalem, about 25 miles, 40 kilometers. The location is now an archaeological site in an Israeli national park, partially owing to the history of the ancient city. In the biblical text, and in addition to the mention in Joshua, the town pops up several times, though this mention in Joshua is the first time it shows up in the biblical text, In this part of the narrative, its king is named Jephiah. He, along with the other four Amorite kings, would be defeated and then hide out in a cave. They were found and executed, with their bodies being thrown back in that cave, where they remain until this day, meaning when the book of Joshua was written. After that, and the fall of the cities of Makeda and Libna, the Israelites attacked Lachish. But the Canaanites there weren't going to go terribly easily. So the Israelite army laid siege to the town, a siege that only lasted a day, as the city fell on the next day. 
it and the surrounding territory would be assigned to the tribe of Judah. Later, in 2 Chronicles, the city was fortified by Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon. Sometime after that, the former king Amazicah of Judah fled to Lachish after his defeat by the king of northern Israel, Jehoash. While he was hiding out there, Amazicah was captured and killed, an event that occurred in 767 BC. Not quite 100 years later, the prophet Micah warned the residents of Lachish that the destruction of Samaria by the Assyrians would soon spread to Judah. This led to what's found in 2 Kings 18, among other places in the text, when the Assyrians lay siege to the city. So, why all of these sieges? The city apparently had an impressive defensive wall. More on that in a bit. Jeremiah 34 records that Lachish was one of the last three fortified cities in Judah to fall to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II. Finally, the book of Nehemiah records that Lachish was an area where the people of Judah settled during the Persian period. And that's it for the biblical text. Fortunately, the city is also found in the outside record. Pottery has been uncovered that dates to as far back as about 5500 BC. Other artifacts show a thriving city in the early Bronze Age, between about 3300 and 3000 BC. This would place it at least 1000 years before Abraham showed up in the area. When he was there, around 2000 BC, Lachish continued as a small but thriving city on a tell. Artifacts from that period include what remains of a small religious temple. The other artifacts include pottery from the period. This era of the city's development continued until about 1650 BC. At that time, the Israelites were about halfway through their Egyptian excursion. And about this time, the city became one of the more important locations in the region. This was likely due to its location on a distinct tell. The site was improved upon by the people, no doubt led by the king. They steepened the slopes of the hill and improved the walls of the fortification, all of this proving rather formidable to any invading force. This is likely why the Israelites had laid siege to the city, unlike the other places they were conquering in the region at the time. Also during this period, a large palace was built in the city. Soon afterward, though, the city was destroyed by fire. Do note that the text in Joshua makes no mention of a fire, but does note the Israelites slaughtered every person in the city. The general thought, though, is that this fire occurred well before the Israelites entered Canaan. After the fire, the city was re-established and once again became a central hub for the region. Its first potential mention in the outside written record was in an Egyptian New Kingdom text, where it was called Rekisha. But other than the name, the papyrus really doesn't add to the understanding of the history of the city. Backing up just a little, the first named mention, at least those uncovered and when ordered chronologically, and the written record was in the 14th century B.C. Egyptian Armana letters. 
a trove of clay tablets uncovered in Egypt. In one of these, the leader of Lachish, his actual title is rather unclear, but regardless, he reassured the Egyptian pharaoh of his loyalty to Egypt. This pharaoh was either Amenhotep III or his son Akhenaten. This dates the letter to between about 1388 and 1334 BC. This would place it generally in the same period as the Exodus, and during the 18th dynasty in Egypt, a period known for its military campaigns in the region that included Lachish and more generally Canaan. During the Egyptian 20th dynasty, which was between about 1189 and 1077 BC, the Egyptians began to lose what control they had over Canaan. This did not bode well for Lachish. It had prospered when the Egyptians were in charge and was now in a downturn. Then, around 1150 BC, it was again destroyed by fire. But it would be rebuilt in a time that seems relatively prosperous as the single temple from the pre-fire era was replaced by two different temple complexes. Then, just another 20 years later, in 1130 BC, another fire ravaged the city. After this, the city appears to have been either completely abandoned, or the population was at a minimum significantly reduced. There are numerous theories about this second fire. First, note that according to most of the accepted timelines concerning the Israelites occupying the city, in the region in general, both of these fires were well after the Israelites came into the area. But it was also before the uniting of the tribes under Saul, placing it during the period of the judges. While that there was a fire is clear, what caused it is a matter of much speculation. It could have been an invasion by an outside force like the Sea Peoples, possibly a.k.a. the Philistines, or it could have been fighting among the tribes, or it could have been a natural fire or an associated natural disaster, like an earthquake that led to a fire. Back in the history of the Israelites, which was during this period, of all the cities in the ancient kingdom of Judah, Lachish was second in importance, trailing behind Jerusalem. Which gets me to the Iron Age history of the city. Sometime during the 10th century BC, rebuilding from the last devastating fire began. This would be after King Saul, who ruled in the 11th century BC, and possibly during David's reign. Whenever it was, around 925 BC, it may have been destroyed again, this time as a result of Egyptian pharaoh Shashank I. In the next century, so the 9th BC, under the Judean kings Asa and Jehoshaphat, whose combined rules was between 911 and 849 BC, Lachish again rose to importance in the southern kingdom. This is evidenced by the remains of heavily fortified massive walls and ramparts, along with a royal palace that was built on a raised foundation in the center of the city. Obviously, there was a great investment of resources in the city. 
These fortifications may have been a result of all the destruction that had previously been wrought on the city by outside invaders. The general thinking is that these invasions were coming from the south in the coast, places like Egypt, and maybe invaders from the sea, and would allow Lachish to serve as a buffer between the invading armies and the more important city of Jerusalem, located the 20-some miles to the northwest. Then, around 701 BC, something happened. What is evident is that it involved the Assyrians. An uncovered inscription from the period reads, Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the people of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment, at the entrance of the city of Lachish, I'd give permission for its slaughter. This may have been during the Assyrians' second campaign in the region, which was around 688 BC, but don't get too hung up on the dates. At the time, in either of the dates, 701 or 688 BC, the city of Lachish was about 20 acres, 8 hectares in size, and surrounded by a formidable wall. Found among the archaeological ruins was a siege ramp, the only Assyrian version of this war-making device uncovered to date. More on that specific ramp in a minute. As for siege ramps, they are exactly what they sound like, essentially ramps, sometimes marginally portable, but usually built on site that allowed an invading army to breach the walls of a city. They were sometimes used with siege towers, which served essentially the same function. As for this Assyrian king, Sennacherib, he would later build a palace in the distant city of Nineveh, in what is today northern Iraq. Which really isn't that pertinent to this episode. Except that within that palace, a palace he described as being without comparison, inside it was an entire room with drawings on large alabaster slabs. And all of these seem to depict the siege at Lachish. Assyrian siege ramps, battering rams, and other siege machines, along with combat engineers, army units, and in the background, Lachish's architecture, and a depiction of its final surrender. To devote an entire room to the single episode is certainly indicative of the importance the battle held to the king and likely to the Assyrian Empire as a whole. The depictions also give insight into how siege warfare was waged at the time. Most of these alabaster slabs are now on display in the British Museum in London. That entire siege episode doesn't sound pleasant. Neither does the Assyrian king given permission to slaughter the residents. And this is probably referring to the same event in Second Kings which, with my usual paraphrasing, reads, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, which would place it around 701 BC, King Sennacherib of Assyria came up against all of the fortified cities of Judah and captured them, which included Lachish. King Hezekiah of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. The king of Assyria demanded 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. 
Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, he stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The next century, late in the 7th century BC, the city was rebuilt, a rebuilding that occurred as the Neo-Assyrian Empire declined. But you should know what, well, really who, was on the horizon. In this case, the eastern horizon. In 587 BC, like what was happening throughout the region, Lachish would fall to the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Pausing for a second. Over the past hundred plus years, there has been a great deal of archaeological exploration at the site. It's these expeditions, then excavations, that led to most of the history in the outside record. I'll spare you the vast majority of the recounting of the history of those expeditions, because it gets rather tedious and doesn't add much to the understanding of what happened in the city during the Old Testament period. But there is one bit that weaves rather well into the biblical narrative. In the 1930s, an expedition uncovered what had become known as the Lachish Letters, for obvious reasons. These so-called letters, 18 in total, were correspondence written on pottery from an unidentified source to the Hebrew garrison commander at Lachish, just before the city fell to the Babylonians, likely in either 589 or 586 BC. As you would be correct in suspecting, they were written in ancient Hebrew. And here's the significance. When they were uncovered, with the exception of the Old Testament, these letters were the only collection of documents in the ancient Hebrew language. Back in that period, with the defeat of the Israelite forces, most of the residents were exiled. While the Babylonians ruled the region, a large palace was built on the foundation of what had been the Judean palace. Also, while they were occupied, a large altar, known contemporarily as the Solar Shrine, was built on the east side of the Tell. Though, do note that it's possible this shrine was constructed during the later Persian occupation. Backing up a bit, as Babylon declined and the captivity ended, some of the formerly exiled Jews returned to Lachish and built a new city with renewed fortifications. The solar shrine was abandoned after the area fell to Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. Some researchers even proposed that after the region fell to Alexander, Lachish was mostly abandoned. And that's it for the city. Also found in Joshua 10 is a reference to a mysterious book, the book of Jasher. When the narrative of Joshua recounts the day Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, it provides as proof of the event that it was also recorded in this book, which naturally, gets me to this outside text. Reminiscent of the Book of the Wars of the Lord I covered in Chapter 5, Episode 12, released a year ago. The Book of Jasher is also a lost text. It's mentioned two, maybe three times in the Old Testament narrative. 
The first is this time in Joshua, again in Samuel, and possibly in Kings. As for the name Jasher, it could be alternatively translated as the book of the just man, or possibly the book of the upright. The 11th century AD Jewish scholar Rashi posited that the passage referred to Jacob blessing his grandson via Joseph, the grandson being Ephraim. Jacob, despite Joseph trying to correct him, said that Ephraim's sons shall become a multitude of nations. Joshua descended from Ephraim, and Rashi proposed that with this victory over the five allied Canaanite kings, and his ability to make the sun and moon stand still. All of this gave the Israelite leader renown among the various nations who heard of the victory, and this, according to the medieval writer, was the basis of the book of Jasher. According to the book of 2 Samuel, in its first chapter, when David spoke his lament over the deaths of King Saul and the king's son Jonathan, he ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. And this song is written in the book of Jasher. So, Joshua knew of this book and referred to it when he wrote the book bearing his name, as did Samuel when he wrote his books. And by reference, King David knew of the book of Jasher too. Do note that the King James renders the passage slightly different. Instead of calling it the song of the bow, as it is in the New Revised Standard, the King James records it as the use of the bow. And also note that the words the use of are not in the original Hebrew text. Instead, these words were added by the 17th century translators of the King James for clarity. Remember that when you hear the King James is a word-for-word translation. The NIV renders it slightly different, too calling it the lament of the bow. Whichever translation you use, it does point to something, and that's that the book of Jasher, at least in this section, was either a songbook or a book of poetry. This song, or lament, of the bow is theorized to be a poetic lament concerning the deaths of King Saul and his son Jonathan, and it appears that it was used to teach the Judeans possibly the entirety of the Israelites. As for this passage in the book of 2 Samuel, along with the one in Joshua, in the 3rd century BC Greek Septuagint, the work is referred to as the book of the just. And the Greek does not have any reference to this lament of the bow, and simply records that David ordered something to be taught to the people, as it was written in the book of the just. The last mention of the book of Jasher is possibly in the 8th chapter of 1 Kings, but not in any of the translations I use for this podcast. In fact, the only place I could find this was in the ancient Septuagint. In there, after Solomon delivers his prayer, the text says that the prayer was recorded in the book of Song. Some think this book is one and the same as the book of Jasher though that would require that two of the letters in the Greek text to have been transposed. Such an error was exceedingly common when the texts such as these were handwritten by scribes, without spell check, and instead relying on manual proofreading. And that's it for this book.
Also mentioned in this chapter, in a couple of places, is Makeda. The most prominent mention is that this was the location of the cave where the five kings of Canaan were found hiding. Other than these mentions, along with others in the Old Testament, nothing is known about this place. Given that there was at least a single cave, possibly more, and that it was near enough to the battlefield, and that there was a city with a name, that's it. Moving along. Next up should be Gezer, but there's not enough time in this episode to do it justice, so instead, I'll spend the few minutes remaining on Deber. This was another city assaulted by the Israelites in Joshua 10. It's believed to be the same place as the modern city of Ad-Dahariah, located about 14 miles, 23 kilometers southwest of Hebron. It was the American biblical scholar Edward Robinson who, in the 1830s, identified the village as the ancient Deber. On the site, he also uncovered the ruins of an ancient tower, though this is now believed to date only as far back as the Crusader era. But many of the early researchers believed the tower and attached castle dated to the Old Testament era. At the time, meaning in the 19th century, it was a small village of Arabic herders and Bedouins. All of the residents were noted as being Islamic. Half the city was in ruins, and the inhabited buildings tended to be constructed from hewn stone. Many of these buildings were thought to date as far back as the Roman era, 1500 to 2000 years earlier. The town would come under British Mandatory Palestine, then after World War II was part of the country of Jordan, until the Six-Day War of 1967. Since that less-than-a-week-long conflict, the village has been part of the country of Israel. And that's the little that's known about Deber, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Geezer. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find a podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.